We're doing a sermon series called In Defense of Christianity. And how we're doing this, this sermon series is we're kind of approaching it like a, a trial where I'm going to be kind of like the defense, defending uh, Christianity, defending the existence of God, the validity of, of Christianity. Your job is to come every week and kind of be like the jury and to approach this from kind of a neutral standpoint and to let all the evidence that we're going to be looking at over the next several week, weeks, let all that evidence speak for itself. But you might be thinking, okay, well, this isn't really a good trial because what kind of trial only has a defense and a jury? Don't we need to have the other side as well, um, have some prosecution? Well, how that's going to work is I'm actually going to uh, approach the other side in, in two different ways. One way is I'm going to um, each, uh, each week be answering some of the, the major questions that people have about Christianity. And the other way I'm going to approach the other point of view is by asking you to actually get engaged and involved in this, this sermon series. So if, if we're going along and you've got a question about Christianity, could be anything, or maybe you've got a, an, ob, an objection, we're going through this morning, you go, okay, Rich, you're making this point, but I object. I, well, the way to do that is, is if you could actually, um, either during the week or this morning, if you could... You can email or Facebook message in your objections and your questions, and I'll try to get around to answering those sometime over the next several weeks. Or if you just want to remain completely anonymous, what you can do is grab your blue connection card. Don't fill out any information other than on the back. Just put your question or your objection. Stick that in the bucket at the end of the service or in the mailbox out there in the comments, and we'll get around to try and answer that over the next uh, several weeks. But get engaged. Get involved in this series and I'd encourage you, even this morning, as we're talking through stuff, um, don't be shy about pulling out your smartphone if you have one and just going in, a, diving in a next, next step and just kind of checking out some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about. But um, today what I w- I'd like to do is address one of the big questions that people have about Christianity, and that's this one. How can there only be one true religion? How can there only be one true religion? How can Christians claim that their way is the right way and everybody else is wrong? How can Jesus come along and say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How, how, can, how can there only be one true religion? And uh, the, the Christianity doesn't ever set itself up as one of the, the options am, among many. I mean, you heard Jesus' words. He didn't, he didn't say that. I'm one of the ways. He said, I am the way. And then in in the book of Acts, it it boldly asserts this about Jesus. It says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In other words, the Christian faith claims to be the one true religion, to which people say, well, come on, that's a little arrogant to say that you're the, the only true religion. Um, who are you to say that you, you've got it all figured out? Isn't that kind of narrow-minded? Others argue that claiming your religion is the right one is not only arrogant and narrow-minded, they say, okay, that's just flat-out dangerous. And they point to how claiming to be the one true religion, it leads to these feelings of superiority. You begin to think of yourself as better than everybody else, that everyone needs to believe like you no matter what it takes. And when people say this makes religious danger, religion dangerous, I actually agree with them. Religious superiority is, is actually pretty dangerous. All you have to do is look at, at history, and you're going to see that a, a frequent cause of war throughout history has been when one religion 
um, sets itself up as being superior to all others. This doesn't lead to peace. It leads to war. You just have to look back about a, a thousand years to the so-called Christian crusades or, or take um, Islamic terrorism as another example. Or, or look at some of the, the fighting that's happened over the years between the Hindus and the Muslims in India. And claiming your religion as the one true religion has been at the center of a lot of conflict, actually, throughout history. And so because of this, people often respond in one of two ways to religious superiority. One of the ways they respond is they say, okay, we just need to outlaw religion. Let's just get rid of it. Let's make it illegal. Outlaw it, and you're going to get rid of any potential conflict. You're going to get rid of any kind of um, hurt feelings, war arrogance that religion might bring, let's just outlaw religion. Well, history actually tells us, tells us that that's not, not the answer. You don't even have to go back 100 years to find out that that's not the right answer. You have communist Russia, communist China, Nazi Germany that have, that have set themselves up as atheist states that have, that have tried their best to outlaw religion. And in those, those countries, you have some of the greatest atrocities ever committed in the history of mankind happening in the last 100 years, massacring millions of their own people, um, all for the sake of, of, of trying to get them to believe, or because they wouldn't believe like they should have believed. Alistair McGrath, he says this, he says, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. Outlawing religion is, is just not a good answer. And so others come along and they say, well, don't outlaw it. Instead, what you should do is you should consolidate religion. The thinking goes that all religions basically teach the same thing. They all just see part of the truth, not the whole truth. And so we should just unite them all together and, and, and sing along with John Lennon um, imagine no religion. Imagine all the people living life in peace. That's kind of the thinking around consolidate religion. And sometimes this point that every religion only sees part of, of the truth is illustrated by the story of the blind man and the elephant. Some of you have probably heard this story. Um, uh, it's been told many times over the years. Several blind men were walking along one day when they came upon an elephant. And so as they tried to figure out what kind of creature this was, one of them grabbed hold of the trunk and said, this creature is long and flexible like a snake. The second blind man feeling the elephant's leg exclaimed, not at all, it's thick and it's round like a tree trunk. The third blind man comes along and he says, no, it's actually large and it's flat as he's touching the elephant's side. Each blind man could only actually feel part of the elephant, none could see the entire elephant. And in the same way, it's argued, the religions of the world only see part of the truth, but none can see the whole elephant or, or, or claim that they have comprehensive, comprehensive vision of the truth. Leslie Newbegin was a, uh, he was a, a missionary in India um, way back in the 20th century, and he had this illustration about the, the, the elephant and the blind man. He had this illustration thrown at him over and over and over and over again. Until one day, all of a sudden, he, he, he had this realization that the only way you could know none of the blind men had the whole picture 
is if you were the only one who had the whole picture. In other words, the only way that you could tell the story of the blind man is if you were the only one who could actually see. And the only way to assert that, that all religions have a part of the truth is to assume that you are the one who sees what? The whole truth. And you then are doing the very thing you're criticizing religion of doing, and that's setting yourself up as a superior viewpoint. You're assuming that you have the whole truth, which is the, 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 the same thing as saying nobody else does. So it comes back to the argument, how can one religion claim to be the one true religion? And if making the claim has the potential to cause conflict, why even bother making the claim in the first place? So that's kind of like one big massive introduction. I want to unpack this question, and I hope you brought your thinking caps this morning, okay? Um, for starters, we need to have a common understanding of what religion is. You have to have a common understanding. If I were to ask you what, what, what is religion, odds are most of you in this room would say it has something to do with God or belief in God's, something to do with, with God. But that's actually not a great definition of religion because if that's actually the definition of religion that you're working from, then you can't call Buddhism a religion because in Buddhism, they don't claim any belief in God whatsoever. Someone else might come along and say, well, religion is actually the belief in the supernatural. So it's not just God, it's the belief in the supernatural. But if you use that, if you use that, that, that perspective, then you c- can't call Hinduism a religion because in Hinduism, they don't believe in the supernatural beyond the material world. Author Timothy Keller's definition is actually one of the, the, the best ones that I've, I've read, and I think most of us in this room, whether you call yourself a religious person or not, would probably agree with this. He says this about religion. He says, religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things that human beings should spend their time doing. In other words, it's, it's kind of like a worldview. It's how you approach life. It's how you answer the most important questions in life. Or as Webster's Dictionary defines it, it's a cause, a principle, or a system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. And there's hundreds of religions all around this world. Which, again, begs that question, well, how can you say yours is the right one when there's, there's hundreds of religions? But there's hundreds of them. But you could take every religion on the planet, and you, could, you, you, can, you can group them all into one of three categories. Those, uh, th- there are those religions that say only the universe exists, there is no God. Only the universe, there is no God. So atheists would fall into this category. They say there's, they just deny the existence of God. Naturalists would fall into this, this category. They believe that all, exists, all that exists in the universe is physical, material matter. There's no soul. We're just a complex collection of neurons. Um, the, there is no creator. There is, there's, there's just evolution. So there's those that, that say only the universe exists. There is no God. And parents and students in the room, you need to understand something about public schools and, and universities. Don't make the mistake of thinking that there's no religion being taught. Because th- there actually is. It's called naturalism. And if you don't think it's being preached with as just, just as much ardor and faith as I'm preaching here on a Sunday morning, try objecting to evolution with your science teacher or university professor. Try bringing up intelligent design and see what kind of reaction that you're going to get. 
Their, their naturalism is a religion that takes just as much faith as Christianity does. In fact, you're going to see throughout this series, I think it actually takes more faith than Christianity does. But, uh, so, so only the universe exists. There is no God. Another category of religions are those that believe only God exists. There is no universe. So this is the belief that God is everywhere, that he's in everything. He's in the trees. He's in the flowers. He's in the deer. He's in the mountains. The, the, the universe is God. This is also called pantheism. A lot of Eastern religions, they fall into this category. And then the third category of religions are those that believe both God and the universe exist. They both exist. Christianity falls in this category, Judaism falls in this category, and Islam falls into this category. Both God and the universe exist. And here's the deal. Whether you realize it or not, every single person in the room falls into one of these categories. And regardless of what that category is, there are, are four questions that every person on the planet will, well, needs to find the answer to, for starters. But another um, way of looking at it is there's four questions that every person on the planet, at some point in your life, you're going to find yourself trying to figure out the answer to these four questions. And uh, the first question is this, um, and it has to do with origin. How did the universe come into existence? How did we all get here? If you've never asked that question, it's a pretty good question to be asking at some point. How did, how did this planet get here? How, how did that, that happen? And uh, the, the naturalist says it all began with the Big Bang, and then it just sort of evolved from there. The majority of people on the planet believe that, that the universe was created by, by God or by gods, depending on what your religion is. But the first question is, it has to do with origin. The second question has to do with meaning. What is the purpose of everything? If you haven't asked that question already in life, at some point, odds are you're going to be trying to figure out, okay, what's the purpose? What's the, what's the meaning of life? Naturalists will say there is no meaning, there is no purpose, we're just random molecules floating through time and space. Um, Buddhists, on the other hand, believe that there are three goals in life. One of those goals in life is to extinguish desire, and th the thinking is that once you eliminate desire, then you're going to reach nir nirvana, and then you're going to eliminate the cycle of, of rebirth. But, but what's the meaning? Another question is, has to do with morality. How do we determine what is good and what is evil? In most American universities where, where natural, naturalism is the predominant religion, you'll be taught that morality is actually relative. You'll be taught that, well, it, it's, it, it's all up to you. Whatever you think is right, that must be right. If it feels good, then by all means, you go on and, and you do it. If it's not, then don't. Morality, it, it's relative. Islam and Christianity, on the other hand, have sacred books that define what's good and what's evil. Islam has the Quran, and Christians, of course, have the Bible. The, the fourth question has to do with destiny. What happens when we die? Again, it's a question that at some point in life, we all seek an answer to. You, you most likely don't think about it all the time, but when you're at, at that funeral of a loved one, what, what's the question that comes up? What happens next? What happens when we die? Naturalists believe that you simply cease to exist. Christians believe you go to heaven. Hindus believe that you get reincarnated. Islam, uh, Muslims believe in some form of paradise. But here's the deal. Every religion or worldview answers each of these four questions in one way or another. 
Every one of them. And here's where it gets interesting. Every religion, not just Christianity, claims to have the absolute truth when it comes to answering these questions. Every religion. And a lot of times people think, okay, it's just Christians who have this kind of exclusive viewpoint on truth. It's just Christians who think that they're the only ones who, who've got it all figured out. But that's actually not true. Um, every, every religion claims to be exclusive, that, that it's the one that has the, the right way. Um, every, every one of them. They all claim to be truth, but think about it. They can't actually all be truth, can they? Because truth by its very nature makes everything else untrue. Truth by its nature is exclusive, so not everybody can say that they all have the truth. Do you realize how offensive it is to say to a a Palestinian Muslim or an Israeli Jew that at the end of this life, they're just going to all be together and they're all going to be just kind of cozying up to one another. They're all going to be buddies up in heaven. There have been wars and many lives that have been fought over that battle. And even, even in the face of this reality, though, our culture still says it's arrogant to say that one truth is above them all. But even in saying this, the track with me for a second here, even in saying that it's arrogant to say there's one truth, truth that's above them all, see what you're doing if you say that? You're actually setting up your view of truth to be above all the others and are doing the very thing you're saying that no one else should do. And this is just, I mean, it's intellectually inconsistent. Truth is by nature exclusive. And, and every single individual has a set of beliefs about God, about the world, about people, about life that by nature are exclusive. Even the belief that Religious exclusivity is wrong by nature is what? An exclusive belief. Therefore, the question shouldn't be how do we get rid of all religions? It shouldn't be how do we consolidate all religions? That shouldn't be the question. The, the, the questions should be how can I know uh, which religion is true? And the second question should be which religion has the highest potential to bring pr- peace, to bring harmony, to bring love in, in a divided world? Rabbi Zacharias is a, uh, just a brilliant Christian apologist, and uh, he actually, he, he, he's from India, and he was, uh, he started off as an atheist, then he was, when he was 17 years old, he was, um, he was getting ready to commit suicide, and in his, just in his despair, he cried out to God, had an encounter with God, and then from there, he just determined, he said, okay, God, if you're, if you're real, then I'm not going to leave any stone unturned in figuring out whether or not you are real. I'm not going to leave any stone unturned in figuring out the validity of the Christian faith and the claims that it makes. And so he actually ended up, he gave his life to Christ, and he converted to Christianity. And um, today he is one of the most humble, yet uh, just brilliant minds when it comes to defending the Christian faith. Go online sometime this week and just Google Rabbi Zacharias, this guy's just, he, he's just incredible. But he says there are three tests for truth. Three tests. And, and these are all tests that need to be measured against those four questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Three tests. And the truth will answer each of these questions in a way that is unchanging and consistent. So as you, as you seek out truth, you need to be asking these three questions. 
across or, or, or applying these three tests across all four of those questions that we mentioned earlier. And, and the first test has to do with logical consistency. Logical consistency. In other words, does it make sense? It, it can't say one thing here about the origin of the universe, but then down here say something else about the meaning of life. It, it just needs to make sense across all those four questions. Truth is unchanging. Truth is logically consistent. It, it makes sense. And so, for example, if you take this, this test and you apply it to Buddhism, um, we find that it's logically inconsistent. One of the primary goals, like I said earlier on in Buddhism, is that you would just eliminate desire. That you, they call it extinguishing desire. That, that's a primary goal. But so as a parent, what you're saying is, is I can't desire to be with my kids? Or if you were, are, are paying attention to, um, to some of the, the news that's happening out of, out of, out of Asia, um, you've got the Dalai Lama, who is the, the supreme rule leader of Tibetan Buddhism, and as he gets towards the end of his life, he's got a very clear goal, and that's the freedom of Tibet from China. And so here he has this goal, which is a desire, which is completely okay. It's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, you see what I'm saying? It's inconsistent. So you're saying that you need to eliminate desire, but on the other hand, you're saying, okay, but it's totally okay for the supreme leader of Buddhism to have this very strong, outspoken desire. It's logically inconsistent. Another test of truth is empirical adequacy. And this is just a fancy phrase, which means it needs to stand up to being tested. Is there any evidence to support what, what's being claimed? It needs to, needs to be able to be tested. And uh, so we take this test, and when you apply it to, to Islam, we find that it makes claims about Jesus that actually don't stand up to testing. One of the things that, that Islam says about Jesus is that he, um, they, they believe that he was crucified on a cross, but they don't believe that he died. And do you see how if you don't believe that Jesus died, that actually changes a whole lot of things, doesn't it? And so they don't believe that, that he died, and yet throughout history, you have every major historical document, both unbiblical and biblical, that completely agree on this historical reality that Jesus did indeed die from the cr on the cross. It's interesting. You can go on, online this week, and uh, if, you, if you do some research, you're actually going to find some, some video of Muslims who have converted to Christianity after they have dove in and done some serious research on the crucifixion. It's very fascinating. But So you have this test, empirical adequacy. Then another test of truth is experiential relevance. In other words, does it line up with my everyday experience? Does what this truth that I adhere to in life, does it line up with my everyday reality? Am I experiencing what it says I, I should experience? So you, got, you have naturalism. You apply this test to naturalism. Naturalism reduces everything down to molecules just kind of floating along. And, and let me ask this about a molecule. Does a molecule have emotions? No. Does a molecule have a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong? No, it doesn't have any of that stuff. But you and I both know that we do have emotions. We know that we do have a moral compass. But the naturalism, it's got no answer for this. And we're going to, like, like I, I say, we're, we're going to keep diving into this one right here a little bit deeper over the, the, the next 
several weeks. But the bottom line is, naturalism does not have the resources to account for evil, to account for love, to account for justice, to account for courage, basic human, human rights, the existence of the soul, things we know intuitively because why? Because we just experience them every single day. But where does Christianity stand on these three basic tests of truth? Now, obviously, I believe that Christianity stands pretty firm. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here preaching this morning. But, but I love what um, Rice Brooks, he puts it like this. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't prevail only when there are no competitors. It shines most brightly when it's held up to other faiths. Secular religions like Darwinian naturalism can't make the same boast. They don't do well when faced with competition. In fact... They try to eliminate rivals. That's why there is enormous energy spent keeping any reference to the existence of design or intelligent creation kept out of the classroom. Interesting, isn't it? But to really see how, how Christianity stands out, um, you're going to have to keep coming back because we're going to look at all four of these different questions around origin. I mean, when you really start diving into creation and you compare what Christianity believes against what others believe and against what naturalists believe, um, it really starts to, to stand out and raise some serious questions about this belief over here. When you really start to get into issues of morality and you start comparing Christianity against atheism and naturalism, I'm telling you, it, it's not Christianity that has the weak foundation to stand on. It's not. And so we're going to begin just diving into this more over the next several weeks but, but I believe with all my heart, Christianity does a better job of answering those four questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny in light of those three tests better than any other religion on the planet. But what, what about the second question that we were asking earlier on? Which religion has the most potential to bring peace and harmony in our divided world? And again, I believe Christianity is Christ intended it to be lived out. That's a key phrase. Christianity, as Christ intended it to be lived out, simply stands head and shoulders above every other exclusive belief system on the planet when it, when it comes to answering this question about bringing peace and harmony. And it really comes down to the uniqueness of Jesus. It comes down to Jesus. And, and there's three things about Jesus that make Christianity unique and thus um, um, make it the most inclusive with the most potential to bring love, peace, and harmony to our world. And the first thing that makes Christianity unique, if you're following along your notes, is this, the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God, not just a man. And every other, every other founder of every other religion had a beginning. They were born and then went on to live lives that were pointing to God. Only in Christianity do you have God who existed eternally, coming down, making his home in us, among us and, and claiming to be God, claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. And, and Jesus did not try to hide his divinity. Sometimes you'll hear people come along and they'll say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. He never came along and said, I am God. No, he never said it that, that blatantly, but Jesus did claim divinity over and over and over again in Scripture. And I just want to read to you one time where he did that among the many. On one occasion he said, I and the Father are one. That's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be God. And, and the, the religious people of the day, they totally understood what he was doing. In fact, the story goes on to say that 
his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they said, we are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, do what? You claim to be God. Jesus made no bones about it. He claimed to be God. Every other religion has a founder who is human. In the person of Jesus, we have a founder who is God with us. But how can God come to us? That leads to the second thing that, that makes Christianity unique, and that's the humanity of Jesus. God comes to us in the flesh. He comes to us as a human. He comes to us as a baby born in a manger. That's why Christmas is, a, is such a big deal, because God comes down in the flesh. The Bible says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, and why is this important? Why is, it, why is this important when it's, we're talking about the uniqueness of Christianity and its potential to make such a big difference in the world that we live in? Well, here's the deal. Every other religion in the world says essentially two things. It says that the, the purpose of religion is either to free you from the flesh, from the physical world. It's to free you from that or... The physical world is evil, and you must deprive yourself, discipline yourself in order to escape it. But only in Christianity, get this, only in Christianity do we have a God in the person of Jesus who comes to us as God in the flesh, who doesn't just come to kind of sweep believers away and help us just get out of here, escape the evils of this world as soon as possible. We have in Jesus a God who comes to redeem all of it. He comes to empower us to flourish in a broken, fallen world. And with Jesus, it's not, I'm here to help you get the heck out of here and escape this physical world as fast as you possibly can. With Jesus, it's, I'm here to empower you to live a life of love, of joy, of peace in the middle of this broken, fallen world. I'm here to empower you to live in such a way that you redeem everything that's broken in this world. The third thing that's unique about Christianity that we absolutely love here at CTK is the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. Every other religion says you need to work your butt off to get into God's good books. You, you need to just, you need to perform. If you want to be saved, you got to follow this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule. You need to just, you need to perform, 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 perform. And if you, if you do, God's going to bless you. If you don't, God's going to reject you. But if, if he rejects you, then you just need to work harder and harder and harder and harder and harder until eventually you find your way back into God's good books. It's all about your ability to perform. This is not Christianity at all. If you think that Christianity is all about performance and it's all about rules and it's all about regulations, don't get me started. Because it is not about that at all. The, the Bible says this. It says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the gospel. It's not that we work so hard to follow all the rules. It's about, it's about God coming as, as Jesus coming to earth and dying on, on a cross and doing the work that we couldn't do in, on our own. It's not about the work that we do. It's about the work that God has already done. It's about grace. It's about grace. I would love to, if we had time this morning, to just 
to just dissect one religion after another and just all the rules, all the ways that you have to perform, perform, perform. We don't have time for that this morning. But Christianity it is all about grace, what God has done. And do you see what this does? Maybe you're going, okay, Rich, what does that have to do with, with religious superiority? What does that have to do with com- coming in and making a difference in a, broken, in a broken world? What does that have to do with anything? Well, well, here's what it does. The gospel, Jesus, Christianity, is the only exclusive belief system in the world that totally undercuts the potential for feelings of superiority. It totally undercuts it. Because the basis by which you become a Christian, the basis by which you are saved, is by admitting that you aren't good. It's by admitting that, man, your life is jacked up. It's by admitting, I do not have it all together. I can't do this. I am messed up. That is how you you become a follower of Jesus. You're admitting that you desperately need help, that you need grace, that you need a Savior. And it completely undercuts any potential for superiority. And instead, what it does is it, it, it brings this humility. Every other belief system in the world, and I'm talking every single one, even the belief that no religion should claim to be the one true religion, every other belief system, it sets you up as superior to all other viewpoints, which will do what? It will build into you pride. It will build into you this tendency to distance yourself from, from those who believe dif- dis- differently than you. And at worst, it'll build into you this tendency to even hate others who don't believe the same way that you do. And maybe you're, you're here this morning, and, and I know someone in the room is going, okay, wait a second, Rich. I have an objection. You're talking about objections. I've got one right now. I know plenty of Christians who have set themselves up as being superior to everybody else. I have met a few in my day, too. <laughs> But you have to understand something about these people. They have forgotten or just simply strayed from the heart of the gospel. When you begin to set yourself up in pride and you begin to think that, hey, I've got it all figured out. You need, to, you need to get it figured out. You have strayed from the heart of the gospel because it is all about God's grace. It is all about how I am a sinner desperately in need of God's grace. Grace. I, I'm not somebody who's just morally superior. I'm not someone who's intelli- just way more intelligent than everybody else. I'm not someone who's, like, who's going, okay, yeah, I can pat myself on the back because, yeah, I got this thing figured out. No, the Bible even says your faith is a gift from God. It starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. And it is Jesus all the way through. There is no room for Christians to, to, to feel morally superior to everybody else. And if ever you find yourself getting there, let that be a little heart check that you are beginning to stray away from the heart of the gospel, which is while we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrates his love and dies for us. He dies for us. And and so in conclusion this morning, Christianity is is the only exclusive belief system that, that cultivates deep humility in individuals, which sets you up to be a catalyst for change in our world. When you have that that humility, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about some of the Christians that you see on TV that are just hollering and fighting and ranting and raving and angry and mad all the time is they are not setting themselves up to be a catalyst of change in the world. No, actually, you're just kind of being a little freakish and nobody even wants to be near you. But, but when, you, when you begin to, 
When, when you begin to, to, to understand the gospel, it cultivates this deep humility, and then you're, you're able to, to be a change agent in the world, not through power and control, but by living a life of service, by living a life of service. Christianity is the only exclusive religious belief system that seeks to transform and redeem the world, not just view it as evil and try to escape from it all. Another thing, in, in, in closing, Christianity, because of the nature of grace, it actually sets up the most inclusive, loving kind of communities that have ever existed in the history of the world. A lot of people misunderstand this about Christianity. They think it's, it, it just creates division and all that. Well, not when it's lived out as Christ intended it to be lived out. When it's lived out as Christ intended it to be lived out, it's actually the most inclusive community. No other religion has mixed the poor and the rich like Christianity has done. No other religion has, 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 has brought um, as many different ethnicities together as Christianity has done. No other religion has empowered and valued women and children as much as Christianity has done, contrary to what the world says today. Throughout the history of the church, there is incredible value and esteem given to all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of class, regardless of social status. It doesn't matter because in the person of Jesus Christ, it is come one, come all. The door is wide open. Jesus says, put me at the center of your life and receive power to change the world through my love because my grace is, is sufficient for you. Christianity is so, so unique that way. I love that Jesus comes along and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I wish we could, we could see his face and hear his tone when he says that. He doesn't say that standing up on his pedestal looking down at everybody, going, man, I wish you guys would just all figure it out already. I'm the way, I'm the truth in life. Come on, come on, people. That's not what he's doing at all. He is looking out on humanity and saying, you're searching in every other place. You're trying to find the way in this religion, in this worldview, and here and there, and it's, it's just not working. I'm the way. He's saying you're searching for truth. You're, you're searching in all these other places. You think truth is going to be found here. You think it's going to be found he, there. Listen, everybody, I'm the truth. He comes along and he says, okay, you're looking for life. You want joy. You want peace. You want to know what it's like to be loved and to, to love others. You're looking for life, and you're looking for there and, and there, and you're trying to find it in your stuff. You're trying to find it in your relationships. You're trying to find it everywhere else. But listen. He's looking out, and he's looking on you today sitting in this room, and he's saying, I am, I'm the life. And he says that with more love than you will ever, ever know. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he invites all of us, he invites all of us to put our faith and trust in him, to put our faith and trust in him. And over the next uh, several weeks, we are going to just keep diving into the claims of Christianity. One of the things on the last uh, couple services this morning that, that uh, just with different conversations that, that we've had, um, different people have had with me in the commons and stuff, you know, one of the things that, about Christianity is that you know, a lot of the world makes it look like the claims of Christianity and the foundation for Christianity is pretty weak. 
like the foundation is, is just not very strong. But, but when you begin to, to hold Christianity and the truth that Christianity claims up against any other religion or any other worldview, you actually see that it's, it's the opposite that is true. It's the opposite that's true. And so I would invite you to keep coming back um, and be a part of this and just, just uh, dive in with us looking at, at, at the claims of Christianity. And I know God's going to do a few things through this. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna help the doubter and the skeptic and the cynic to, to at least understand what Christianity is really all about. But for those of you in the room that, that are believers in Christ, this is going to make your faith that much stronger. And over this last couple of weeks, as I've been just diving in, it's, it's been so cool to see how it just strengthens your faith, strengthens your faith. So um, I'd invite you to come back and just, you know, let, that, let that, that sentence that Jesus uttered just sit with you this morning. He says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for truth. I thank you, Jesus, that you don't leave us to kind of have to figure out truth on our own, and you don't leave us to have to, we don't have to figure out um, exactly how this world began or what's good and what's, what's evil, right, wrong. We don't have to be left guessing what happens when we die, because Jesus, you, you have, you've made truth known to us. I thank you so much for that. And Lord, I just want to lift up, God, anybody in the room this morning, God, who, who's a, who doubts and who, for whatever reason, God, you know their heart, but God, for whatever reason, Jesus, they're just having a really hard time believing in the existence of God and believing that the claims of Christianity are true. God, I pray, Jesus, that Lord, God, you just would show yourself to them. Jesus, that you would make your truth known to them. God, I pray that, that Jesus, as they leave this building this morning, that, that Father, you would, you would just be drawing them to yourself. God, I pray that, that Jesus, they would just go on a truth quest and that Jesus, you would just make yourself known to them. And Lord, for uh, the rest of us, God, those in this room who, who, who aren't questioning truth but are going, okay, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm following Jesus. I've, I've surrendered to him. My faith and my trust is in him. Father, I pray that you would help us to be just like you, that we would never, that we would never become inflated with pride, that we would never become inflated with this sense of superiority like we've got it and, and just everybody else just needs to finally get it figured out. God, I pray that we would never do that. And God, if we have, Lord, I pray that, that God, repentance would be the fruit of this sermon this morning. Lord, I pray that, Jesus, we would keep a humble posture God, even in the, the, the face of adversity, God, even in the face of someone maybe just this week just being outright hostile towards our beliefs, God, I pray that in the face of that, God, that we would just maintain a hum, uh, just a humility, God, just a, a, a grace about us, Lord, this, the same kind of grace that you had. And God, as we just, Lord, live our lives, Jesus, rooted and anchored in, in our faith, Lord, I pray that we would go about our workplaces and our schools God, wherever we find ourselves, may we go about our lives, God, just with grace and humility, just allowing your Holy Spirit to work in and through us to serve the world around us and to be change agents in the world that you place us in. Father, I pray all this in your good and awesome name. Amen. Amen.